A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honour? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snorted it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Well, do keep that open, and then inside your service sheets is an outline of where we're going. Sir George Jacobescu is the uh, chairman of Canary Wharf Group. Imagine I bump into Sir George at some event here in the wharf, and I invite him round for dinner at our house. He agrees, he tells his PA to put it in the diary. On the evening that we've arranged, this high-end Merc pulls up with some darkened windows and so on. The doorbell rings, and there he is, Sir George. And I say to him, oh, you know, welcome, come in, come upstairs. And then I say to him, George, I'm afraid we were really hungry. And uh, so we went ahead a bit earlier, and um, we've actually just finished the meal. But look, don't worry, uh, we haven't washed up yet. And so what we'll do is, if you just sit there, we'll give you the plates that we've used, and you can lick them. And look, it was really nice gravy, so, you know, I think you're in for a real treat there. And um, there's plenty still on the plates, and, you know, our dog Sally, she's not going to be happy about this, but there we go, you, ha- you have the plates. And there's some leftovers that we put in the food waste... But it's still on the top, so I reckon we can just probably fish that out and pull some bits off, and you know, it's going to be fine. Could you imagine that happening? Of course not. I mean, it's unthinkable, it's ridiculous, it would never happen. But that is how the people of Malachi's day were treating God. And it may be, it may be that we are doing the same without realising it. 
That is the challenge in today's passage. Malachi is just this little book, but it punches above its weight. It's hard-hitting. So we noted last week that the term oracle there in verse 1 could be also translated burden. And it flagged up that Malachi's message was burdensome. That is, it contained heavy things. Things that were hard for him to deliver and things that were hard to hear. And that is definitely the case in this second half of chapter 1. That Malachi does not pull his punches. He began, we saw last week, he began the book with the good news that God loves his chosen people. He hates his enemies. But being chosen and loved by God does not mean we have no obligations. We do. With privilege comes responsibility. And these people back then, they had dropped the ball big time. How they were treating God was completely unacceptable. He wouldn't stand for it. This is, we saw last week, early 5th century BC. These were God's Old Testament people who had returned from exile in Babylon to Judah. They'd rebuilt the temple. They'd restarted worship. But they'd become spiritually disillusioned. They'd become half-hearted. And God was not happy with how they were treating him. And so now he confronts them and he reads them the riot act. And it's a message we need to take to heart as well because we can very easily end up doing what they were doing back then. In fact, we may be doing it already without actually realising it. So we're going to look at three things. You'll see inside the outline. We're going to look at what they were doing, then secondly, why it's so serious, and then thirdly, what the solution is. First then, what were they doing? So look with me at chapter 1, verse 6. A son honours his father, and a servant his master. Okay, yeah, of course, we say, well, you know, we honour, we respect people in authority over us. Our father, our boss. That's normal, that's expected behaviour, It is today, it was back then. Verse 6 goes on. If then I am a father, where's my honour? And if I am a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests, who despise my name. So he's saying, if an earthly father or an earthly master expects to be honoured, how much more so does our heavenly father, our master in heaven, But instead they were dissing him, disrespecting him, despising him. Now both the priests and the people were guilty of this, but the priests were ultimately responsible, so God God calls them out here. He says, O priests who despise my name. How do they respond? How do they respond? Verse 6, that you say, how have we despised your name? And the tone is dismissive, just as it was last week, uh, back in verse 2, when they questioned God's love. They're saying, you know, despised your name? Uh, what are you talking about? We, we haven't done that. We're not guilty. So they didn't think there was a problem. God accused them of despising his name, but they were not aware of doing, of doing that. Just as we may be not aware that we are doing it too. So it may be that we are despising God's name without realising it. It's part of our fallen condition that uh, we not only sin, 
but we're blind to our sin and our guilt. How then were they despising God's name? So, verse 7, God says, By offering polluted food on my altar. So the sacrifices they were offering at the temple on the altar were not up to scratch. They were defective in some way. There was pollution in the sanctuary. Not from carbon emissions, but from defective offerings. But again, notice in their arrogance, they push back. Verse 7. But you say, have we polluted you? They're saying, come on God, you're you're talking nonsense. Verse 7, by saying, the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? The Old Testament law was very clear about what animals were acceptable as sacrifices. Let me read some verses from Leviticus 22, verse 19. If it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. To be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated, you shall not offer to the Lord. Now that's very clear, but that is exactly what the people were offering in Malachi's day. And the priests were turning a blind eye to it. Why were the people doing this? Well, I think simply because it didn't cost them as much. It was cheaper. So, you know, imagine Bob has got uh, 20 sheep in his flock. And he needs to take one of them to the temple as sacrifice... And the law said it's got to be a male without blemish. But Bob thinks, they're my best sheep, they are. Tell you what, this one over here was hit by a chariot recently, a sort of hit and run thing on the main road. Can't walk anymore, not got long to live. Let's take that one instead. I'll slip the priests a fiver. They're not bothered. And they were so used to doing it, and everybody was doing it, that no one thought anything of it. For them, this was just normal. This was not a big deal at all. But to God, this was the gravest insult. It was not giving him the honour that he deserves. It was despising his name. It was evil, he says twice in verse 8. It was dissing him, was tossing him the leftovers, was giving him the plates to lick. And the question is, could we be doing the same? Well, we need to put on our New Testament specs when we read any Old Testament passage like this. We don't have temple, we don't have priests, we don't have animal sacrifices anymore. So how does this relate to us? When we put our New Testament specs on, we see two things. Firstly, it points us to Jesus. The ongoing failure of priests and sacrifice in Malachi's day, it cried out for something better. We need something better. Jesus is the better. Jesus is the better priest. So these Old Testament priests, they were compromised, they were half-hearted, they were neglecting God's house. But of Jesus it is written, John 2.17, zeal for your house will consume me. So he's the better priest. He's also 
the better sacrifice. So these Old Testament sacrifices in Malachi's day, they were blemished, they were unacceptable. But Jesus, 1 Peter 1.19, he was a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus was both perfect priest and perfect sacrifice. As Hebrews 9.14 says, Christ offered himself without blemish to God. And so as New Testament believers, we trust in Jesus as our perfect priest and perfect sacrifice. We give thanks for him. We come to God with confidence through him. We are accepted in him despite our many sins and many failings. If we're trusting in anything other than Jesus to get right with God, it's like bringing roadkill to the temple. It's not acceptable. It doesn't work. So if we're trusting in our good works, our religious performance, or anything else, these are blind, sick, lame animals. And instead, we need to look to Jesus as our perfect priest, our perfect sacrifice. Now that is a switch we can do even today. To turn from trusting in ourselves, to receive Christ as our priest, as our sacrifice, and then we can go home from the barge today knowing I'm accepted by God. But secondly, if we are those in Christ, we are all now priests offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. So we had this in our first reading, 1 Peter 2.5. It called all of us as believers a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So if we're all now believers as those in Christ, what are these spiritual sacrifices we offer to God? Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Jesus... Let us then offer continually up a sacrifice of praise to God. Don't neglect to do good. Share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, things like praise, doing good, sharing. These are spiritual sacrifices we offer. Romans 12.1 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So these are the sacrifices we bring as New Testament priests, which we all are, if we're those in Christ. Now, these sacrifices we bring do not make us right with God. We've just seen, only Jesus' sacrifice for us makes us right with God. These sacrifices we bring are a response to that. They express our thanks, they express our commitment to serving and loving the Lord now. But the question is this. What is the quality, what is the quality of the sacrifices we are offering to God as those in Christ? Does it matter? Some might say, well, look, I'm accepted in Christ, so the quality of my sacrifices doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Really. So God isn't bothered with how I live now as someone in Christ. I can toss God the leftovers, and he's fine with that, doesn't have a problem with that. I don't think so. In response to his mercies in Christ, God calls us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is speaking of whole life, wholehearted commitment. 
And we dishonor him, we despise his name, if we toss him the leftovers. If we give him the plates to lick. If we give him second best. How might we be doing this? Maybe without realizing it. Well, let me suggest a few areas you can maybe think of more. Firstly, godliness. Is my attitude to godliness offering God sick animals instead of the best ones? God calls us as his people to flee from sin, to pursue righteousness. He calls us to make every effort to bring our A-game. But if instead, if I've little concern for godliness, if I'm just flirting with sin, I'm compromising, isn't that dishonoring to him? If I'm not committed to doing good and loving others and going the extra mile, if I just think, you know, that's too much effort, it's too costly, I couldn't be bothered, isn't that dishonoring God as they were doing back then? So that's God. Second area, church. Uh, is my attitude to church offering blemish sacrifices? Meeting as God's people should be the most important thing in our weekly calendar, shouldn't it? It should be top priority. Now, if you're someone who's just looking into Christian things, uh, this doesn't apply to you, but if I'm a Christian, how honouring to God is it if I pitch up once in a while when I have nothing better to do? Or, you know, maybe although I've been a Christian for many, many years, I don't do anything beyond turning up, don't serve in any way. What message is it sending to God if I consistently turn up late for church not because I've been trouble parking this week or an accident or a crisis but it's just a bad habit would God say what he said to his people back then would he say you honour your boss where's my honour so at work uh, if you have a weekly meeting with your boss would you consistently turn turn up 10, 15, 20 minutes late. I mean, you wouldn't do it, would you? We come to church to meet with God himself and his people. And if we consistently turn up partway through the service, in this culture, is it not sending a very clear message to God? And the message is, this is not priority for me. This doesn't matter. You don't matter. It's basically giving God the place to lick. A third area could be giving. Uh, is our giving to God offering lame animals? So are, are we just sort of tossing him our loose change? As if, as if God is some sort of beggar on the street, sitting there with a cardboard cup. We give him, you know, a few pence. Or does our giving, does it actually cost us something? If our giving to the gospel is less than our gym membership, what does that say about how important God is to us? Our fourth area could be devotional life. Is our devotional life offering God blind animals? So do we say, I've got no time to read the Bible, no time to pray, I'm too busy, but somehow I find time to you know, scroll through endless social media stuff or watch the latest Netflix series. What is that saying to God? If talking to him 
listening to him is such a low priority for me. Now the point in all of this is that the people back then would have said that they were honouring God, but their actions told a different story. And so how is it with us? Now look, we, we all fail in all sorts of ways, don't we? And we've seen it's only in Christ that anything we offer is acceptable to God. And look, we all go through difficult seasons when life is chaos. But we can't just ignore God's challenge here through Malachi. I think we do well to examine ourselves and ask, am I possibly offering polluted food on the altar? Am I bringing blemished sacrifices? Is it possible? Am I dishonouring God by thinking that he's going to be happy to lick the plates? He's going to accept the the leftovers I toss in his direction. Now, if that's not you, fine. I'm aware that, you know, loads of folk here, 100% committed. That's fine. But if it... If there's anything in this, we need to repent. Because it is serious, and that's the second point, that the Lord will not accept such half-hearted worship. So verse 8 goes on. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favour, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favour of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favour to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. After the return from exile, the people were ruled over by a governor in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, for example, he was one such governor. And the governor was entitled to a daily food allowance provided by the people. There is no way the governor would accept being given blind, lame, sick animals. And neither will God. So if that was an insult to a little governor over Jerusalem, how much more of an insult to the governor of everything. He won't put up with it. So verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who had shut the doors, that's the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Offering God blemish sacrifices... He says it's a waste of time. He says it's worthless worship. He won't accept it. He says, you might as well shut up shop. You might as well close down the temple. Now we tend to think, or we maybe think, surely something's better than nothing. But God says, no, I'd rather you didn't bother. Nothing is actually better than bringing me blemish sacrifices. Again, as we read this with New Testament specs on, it applies at the two levels. That first it points us to Jesus. It's basically saying, look, any worship of God, apart from through Jesus, is pointless. It's a waste of time. So Jesus alone, as perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, he alone can make us acceptable to God. Any other worship is bringing in blemished sacrifices, whether it's just relying on our good works, or another religion entirely, it's a waste of time. God's saying, close the temple, board up the church, sell it to the developers, turn it into flats, turn it into a restaurant. It's a waste of time. But secondly, it points to us. And it's warning us that as believers, blemish sacrifices, giving God second best, it's a waste of time as well. He won't accept it. Now, we might think, well, at least I go to church... 
which is more can, than can be said for 96% of the population in this area. So, you know, surely something's better than nothing. But God says, you know what? I'd rather you didn't bother. Cancel the Sunday services, put up a notice saying close until, until further notice. Okay then, so, you know, if I'm running late for church, should I turn around and not bother? No. <laughs> But this is saying, I do need to reorder my priorities if it's a habit. And if I've been half-hearted and coasting as a Christian, is this saying, look, give up being a Christian altogether? No. It's saying I should repent and give God what he deserves as the person he is. And seeing who he is is the key to treating him rightly. And that's our final point. It's how the passage ends. God would not put up with being treated like this because he is a great king. And the people had lost sight of this. And so it's what they needed to recover, and it's what we need to recover too if we have lost sight of it. So look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Back in Malachi's day, there was no true worship of the Lord anywhere. The nations around were worshipping false gods, and in Judah, they were worshipping the right God in the wrong way. There was no true worship of the Lord anywhere. But the Lord here foretells in verse 11 that one day... He said his name would be honoured throughout the world. From the rising of the sun to its setting, that is everywhere among the nations, my name will be great, verse 11. And again in verse 11, my name will be great. And pure offerings, not polluted ones, would be brought to him. Now, just a little aside here. Verse 11, grammatically, you could translate it as present or future tense. It's worth just being aware of that. Um, Some liberal scholars go for the present tense, and they claim this is saying here in verse 11, they they claim it's saying that any religion gets you to God. Uh, Anyone worshipping any God anywhere in the world in Malachi's day was actually worshipping the Lord, the true God, just by a different name. That is total nonsense. If that is the right reading of verse 11, it is the only verse in the entire Bible that says that. Every other reference in the Bible to pagan religion condemns it. Now this was clearly looking to the future, to Jesus, to the day when people throughout the world would worship the Lord in spirit, in truth, through Jesus. It was looking forward to our day. It was looking forward to this gospel age in which we live. What amazing times we live in. I wonder if sometimes we miss this because, um, you know, our view of the world is is so shaped by the news cycles. You know, the news we're fed every day, it's so bleak. Conflict, humanitarian disaster, extremism, climate change. Now, the doom and gloom is real. But in parallel, there is a very, very different story unfolding. And it's, it's the gospel story. The Lord is now worshipped in spirit and truth 
through Jesus throughout the world, in every country. When Malachi wrote verse 11, he must have scratched his head and he must have thought, how on earth is this going to happen? But God said it, so I'm going to write this, but how on earth is this going to happen? But through Jesus it has. As the gospel's gone out throughout the world, it's amazing that his name is now great all over the world and will be acknowledged as such by everyone when he returns. Now, by God's grace, if we're in Christ, we are part of this global community of true worshippers. But we need to beware. We need to beware dissing God, not treating him as we should. We need to beware being like the people in Malachi's day. And so verse 12 switches back from the prophecy of the future to the reality of the present in 5th century BC. Verse 12, but you profane it, that is my name. When you say that the Lord's table is, the table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, oh, what a weariness is this. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and he vows it, and yet he sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. The people were still going to the temple. They were still bringing offerings, but they were just going through the motions. What a weariness, they said. What a drag. How dull. How boring. I mean, their heart wasn't in it. They were just sort of tossing God the leftovers. So this is telling us God looks not, not only at what we do, but also why we do it. And God looks at our motivation, our heart. And so if we give grudgingly, if we serve half-heartedly, if we obey reluctantly, if we worship wearily, it's an insult to him. It's dishonouring to him, it's despising his great name. Now, that may not be you, in which case, fantastic, praise God. But if that is us, if we see such tendencies in ourselves, what we need is a fresh vision of who God is. Verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. How would we treat Sir George if he came for dinner? We'd treat him like royalty, wouldn't we? Sir George, Jacobescu, chairman of Canary Wharf Group, we'd treat him like royalty. Instead of giving him plates to lick, we'd lay on the best meal we could, be a showstopper. We'd treat him with respect, with the honour that he deserves. If we honour a chairman like that, how should we treat God? The Lord is a great king. He is a great king who created and rules over everything. A great king who sent his son to die for us. A great king who is judge of all, who is the only saviour. A great king whose kingdom will last forever. He is to be feared. He is to be honoured. He demands and he deserves our very best. Now, this is not talking about perfectionism, but it's saying 100% commitment. All that we have, all that we are, living all out for him. Jesus demanded nothing less 
Do you remember in the Gospels? You know, crowds would be following him, crowds of people coming after him, and he would he would try and put them off. He'd essentially say, Look, if you won't give up everything for me, don't bother. It's all or nothing. And loads of people didn't bother. And one day, do you remember, Jesus went round to a Pharisee's house for dinner in Luke 7. And the self-righteous Pharisee who was the host, he dissed him. He disrespected him. The Pharisee dissed him, but the sinful woman kissed him. Which are we like? Stop all protesters. They seem to be everywhere at the moment, those guys. It's amazing that, you know, they were in the wharf last week. And they were, you know, any big sporting event, the Orange Paint Brigade, they sort of leap up from nowhere. Whatever you make of them, you can't fault their zeal. I mean, these guys are passionate, aren't they, about their cause? Shouldn't we be even more passionate? Whole life, wholehearted commitment? Because we serve not just a cause, but a king. A great king, whose name will be feared, will be honoured among the nations. Let's pause to reflect on what we've heard and then we're going to join in prayer together.